Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. Today for our panelists, we have Ben Shapir. Hi, all the way from Tel Aviv where it's finally winter. We have Steve Edwards. Hello from Portland. Myself coming at you from Nashville like usual. And our guest today is Ben Collins. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, thanks very much for having me on today. I'm Ben and I'm calling in from Harpers Ferry in West Virginia. So just about an hour outside of Washington, D.C., it's currently snowing here, so I guess we're winter winter time here too. And I uh, create online courses, write tutorials, and teach workshops all around uh, G Suite and AppScript, which we'll be talking about today. When I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call on to help me find a developer who can build the first version. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile engineers who you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent you need to accomplish your goals. Go to devchat.tv slash G2i to learn more about what G2i has to offer. In my experience, G2i has linked up with experienced developers that can fit my budget, and the G2i staff are friendly and easy to work with. They know how product development works and can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack. Go to devchat.tv slash G2i to learn more about G2i. Do you want to give us just a brief introduction to kind of start us off? What is AppScript? Sure. So AppScript is an implementation of JavaScript with the express purpose of extending Google Apps. So the you know classic example would be automating uh, actions in your Google Sheets. So maybe you want to record a macro to apply formatting across tables. You maybe want to create Google Sheets in bulk or email Google Sheets to people and and those kinds of things. So wherever you want to either take a manual process and, and automate it or extend the functionality of your apps or connect them, that's another great use case. You know, you might get your, your Gmail talking to your Google Sheet and vice versa. So all those kinds of scenarios is where AppScript is, uh, really shines. So why did they develop AppScript? Why not just develop an API that sits on front of those things that you can use JavaScript or like an SDK where you can use like any other language? Yeah, sure. So AppScript actually just celebrated its 10-year anniversary a few months ago at the end of 2019. So it's been around a while. And I think they have APIs that you can connect to. You know, if you're, you're, you're using some other language and you want to connect to G Suite apps, you can use the APIs they have. And so I think they, they built AppScript. It was actually a side project that one of the Googlers started initially. And then I think they, they liked the fact that it made it easier for people uh, who weren't developers to start using a little bit of code and, and extending their, their Google apps uh, in much the same way that Microsoft Office has the VBA language to extend um, Excel and that sort of thing. So, you know, I think it was sort of, it came about as a side project and then it was, it, it sort of took on its own life and grew into this, you know, significant project now that, you know, it's used by developers as well as the sort of knowledge workers, I would say. Looking at from from the side, it, I think this VBA similarity is really key. You know, I've I've been in the enterprise world in the past, and and VBA is really huge and a huge facilitator for the the spread of the whole office ecosystem. So I think it was definitely this goal of creating a similar solution for the G Suite, and uh, obviously since the G Suite itself is cloud based, and I guess they went the same direction with uh, with this but uh, but yeah i definitely agree, think that the catalyst was that similarity with uh, visual basic for applications yeah I, I think that um 
Excel and VBA is sort of the the most popular programming language in the world by uh, some margin if you if you classify it as one. And so, you know, it was important that Google, if they want to really push G Suite as a as an alternative to Microsoft Office, that they had that functionality available so that the power users can, you know, build their own custom solutions on top of G Suite. Yeah, let's talk about VPA. VBA brings back some memories because I first really started programming with VBA and Access, doing Access uh, yeah. database stuff back more years than I want to mention ago. What would you say um, is it most similar to as far as other languages? Is it VBScript? No, so it, it, AppScript is is JavaScript under the hood. Is it, is it like a subset of JavaScript? or uh, It's sort of based on ECMA 3, if I'm pronouncing that right. The The sort of you know, previous older version of JavaScript with a few other newer features added. And they're working on bringing it up to ES6 level. So hopefully that will be something that comes out soon. So it's like an older version of JavaScript, if you like, that runs on Google servers. That actually answers in advance one of the questions that I was planning to ask you because I was actually in preparation for this show, was looking at some videos and some samples and it really did strike me that uh, some of the newer constructs in JavaScript that I'm familiar with, like uh, stuff like iterators and stuff like that, was kind of uh, wholly missing from the from the examples. So, so now you you've explained why that is. <laughs> yeah, that, that that's that's true. And you can develop locally, and then you know, and use all of that ES6 stuff, and then use a a command line tool to then port it across into plain old app script. So you, there, there are ways to do it right now, but it. It means you have to have knowledge and skill to have that developer environment set up and, and know what you're doing. So it's not it's not really in the domain of the casual user or the, the the knowledge worker yet. So you know, for for that group, you're using just the plain vanilla app script, which is the older version of JavaScript. And one more question: you you kind of mentioned that uh, you can actually record stuff, let's say in in Google Sheets. Can you actually transform a recording of operations that you perform into app script? You can. Well, the recording actually generates app script code, and you can go and then click into it and look at the app script code that's being generated by the recording. It's so it's actually a nice way. You know, if you've never coded before, it's sort of that stepping stone into writing your own code. But it never it, it doesn't write particularly high quality code, you know, it's very verbose and it repeats itself and all that sort of stuff. So you end up with, you know, quite long scripts that could be easily be shortened and, and made more efficient. But it's a good, the macro recorder is a fantastic way to to understand what you can do with code and understand what automation is all about and how it can save you time. So it definitely has um, some, some real benefits there, especially if you've never tried to code before. I think that's one of the strongest reasons why you know why AppScript is a, is a re, it's a great first programming language because it's so easy to get started because you have no environment to set up you just simply open up a a Google sheet or a doc click a single menu item and it pops open an editor and you can start writing code straight away so it's a really really easy easy way to start programming and you're also in this familiar environment and and so you know that's a nice reason why I think it's a great way to start and I guess that like Documents are stored in the Google Cloud. Your scripts are stored in the Google Cloud as well, correct? They are, yeah. Uh, and they execute on the clouds of their server-side scripts. I've seen the, the term serverless used in this context. Would that be a good definition of how this operates? Yeah, I mean, 
you know, serverless in the sense that you're not having to worry about that server in the background at all. You can just write the code in your browser, click run, and it and it does its thing without you having to configure anything in the back end. Yeah. So could I literally use uh, this mechanism instead of I don't know uh, AWS Lambda or something like that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wouldn't know. I mean, it would depend on the context, but it's not really in that sense. So most scripts you write are what's called container-bound, so they're attached to a Google app. So you'd have your sheets, and then you would the script file would actually be attached to that sheet and you know do do stuff with that Google sheet. You can connect to other APIs and things like that and bring data back to that sheet, for example. But it's it's container-bound, so it's attached to the sheet. You can you can write standalone scripts to do certain things, like maybe it would live on your drive folder, and you might write a script to generate bulk documents or or that kind of thing where it wouldn't need to be attached to a specific document. But but that's the sort of use cases there that your uh, app script is, is for. So when script is attached to a particular document or specific document, does it actually also resi- exist as like its own separate entity? How do I actually get to the script? Yeah, it's a file in its own right. And you can, you can get to it in a couple of ways. So from your Google Sheets, under the Tools menu... There's a, an option for script editor. And if you click that, it opens up the script editor and then you'll see the Google script file there. Another way is through your app script dashboard where you, all, your, all of your GS files, all of your Google script files exist. And you can go through there and, and access them that way. So normally, would you have one script associated with one file where you put, let's say, lots of functions? Or would you create... Let's say, could I have for one Google Sheet, I could have multiple scripts associated with it? How, how does it... You, yeah, so, so it typically, when you're working with a very small program, you will probably just have one single script file and all of your functions will be in there. Uh, and that works perfectly well, you know, up to a few hundred lines of code sort of thing. And, and then obviously it starts to get kind of unwieldy. And so you can then separate and have multiple script files in your single you know, attached to a single Google Sheet. But what happens is at runtime, they, they all sort of become amalgamated into just, a, it's a single script file that the, having them as separate tabs, if you like, within this script editor is just really for our convenience. So you have to still be careful with function names and that sort of thing across the different .js files. Uh, but you can also have, you can have HTML files within a project. So for example, if you're building an add-on where you have a sidebar which needs some HTML or CSS, or even regular JavaScript or jQuery or something, then you can have HTML files, and you know you can have multiple HTML files then within your within your project as well. So, can you also do things like um, importing external scripts from a CDN? Like you mentioned, jQuery is that like built in, or is that something you'd have to import into? That, your that's something you would import, and you can also import libraries, other app script libraries to use as well. The performance is a little slow when you start to import those things. But you can definitely use them. You can definitely import other, other libraries and frameworks, yeah. So you mentioned your app script dashboard, I believe. You said there's one sheet where you can go to the script editor. Where, where is that? I'm looking, I'm hunting around here and not seeing something like yeah, that. Yeah, let me... Uh, it's not something you'd find from like your dropdown of all your other Google services? The address is script.google.com slash home. Let me see okay. where you would... Oh, I see, okay. Yeah, so it's it's sort of like a kind of like a drive folder, if you like, for all of your all of your app script projects. If you have any triggers set up, which we can talk about in a moment, 
then you can manage them from from here as well. So it's a place to manage all of your script files. Uh, so if you go them. into a sheet and add a, uh, you know, go to your tools and script editor and start creating function, is it going to automatically show up in your dashboard here then? It will, yep. Yeah, you don't have to do anything to add it to this. It just shows up. Okay. And you'll see that, uh, you know, it has a the little icon there. If it's the green one with the white cross on it, that's your Google Sheet with a little script file attached. That's the container-bound example we've talked about. If you have a standalone one, then it's it's like a sort of blue box with a white arrow in to show you that it's a um, just a script on its own without being attached to one of the one of the apps. Before we dive deeper into how it works, can you maybe give like a couple of examples? Both, let's say, let's just go with this one simple example, one sophisticated example of stuff that you might build uh, using app scripts? Dan, you read my mind. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Sure. Let me give you an example of something that I created for myself in my own work that's been you know, phenomenally useful. So, so I teach these online courses, as I mentioned, and what I do is when students have finished the course, I send them a Google form with some questions about the course to get some feedback, you know, sort of what did they think of it, what improvements might they like to see, and that kind of thing. And, you know, for a while that was, that was great because they would fill it in. I would, I would have rows of data then in my Google Sheet. I could look at the data and the, and the responses and then email the people back and say, thanks for sending me your feedback and, you know, to answer your question about what's next, here's some resources, all that kind of thing. Uh, but it was all manual. And as I got more students, it just got to a point where it became unmanageable because I would open this Google Sheet and there would be sort of a hundred rows of data of feedback. And I'm, thinking that's going to take me two days to reply to all those emails. I just don't have time uh, to do this anymore. And so what I did was write an app script program that would take each row of data and it would take the column where I sort of asked for their feedback, send that through to the, the, the Google Cloud has a natural language processing API and it can send back a, a sentiment score of whether you know effectively was positive feedback or negative feedback. And then... Based on that, I can select from a, a sort of little library of, of pre-written email responses. So if it was a positive feedback, you know, I'd grab the positive one. If, if, if it was negative, I'd grab the one that corresponded to that and then create a draft email in my Gmail folder automatically for me with, the, with that bit of feedback and, and with all of the response the person submitted as well. So then what I can do is I can just go to my Gmail draft folder, take a look and say, oh, I've got, you know, 15 new email drafts here today from the feedback. And I can just look at each draft in turn and actually read the feedback, the original feedback the student submitted, plus then the sort of this auto-generated response. And then on top of that, I can then manually add, you know, one or two quick sentences to say, on that specific point you mentioned, here's my answer, uh, or answer any questions they have and still make it personal because I can add that little touch before I then press send. And so it's allowed me to go from just sort of not being able to respond at all to now suddenly having a system that's manageable where you know it just takes five or ten minutes each day to jump in there, quickly check the sort of three, four, five, ten emails and respond to them and send them onwards. So that's an app script project that that's really helped me in my business actually and that sort of I still use to this day. I mean it's not hugely complex. That's a few hundred lines of code in app script just in a single JS folder that's attached as a container bound script. To, to the spreadsheet that receives the form responses. So it's nothing, you know, it's not some sort of gigantic project, that one. You know, so that's one example. Another example uh, that I'm just working on, actually, sort of the last day or two was 
in Excel, what you can do, one of the things you can do in Excel is to filter tables by color. If you've shaded some of your values, let's say you've used conditional formatting to highlight all the values above a threshold, for example, in your table, and what you want to do is then filter that table down onto those colored values. Well, you can do that in Excel by saying filter on the color, but you can't do that natively in Google Sheets. But AppScript, again, you know, comes to the rescue and you can write a small AppScript program again that just takes a look at the table, works out what the background colors are for all of the cells, applies a filter, and then just and filters the data down onto that, you know, the color that the user's chosen. So again, another little example there of, of something you might do with AppScript. So if we consider the second example, actually, the one with filtering the colors, I guess that what would trigger that would you would like it to be some sort of a menu option that you kind of add to the Sheets user interface or something like that. Is that something that you can do, like associate uh, an app script with, an, uh, with a new like uh, button or menu item or something like that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you can create custom menus in AppScript. So right up at the top of your Google Sheet, you have you know, the file edit view. And then uh, over on the right-hand side, you can create your own custom menu as well. And what you do is you, you use one of the event triggers to then every time you open your sheet, there's an on open event trigger so that when the sheet opens, that menu is just loaded automatically. So it shows up um, you know, right away for the user. Can you talk a little bit about the event triggers? Yeah, there's only, they're a little bit limited in, in Google Sheets. Let me just bring up, so there's that on open one that I talked about. So the other ones are things like when the, the sheet changes, that can trigger action. So, you know, the values in cells change, triggers you to go and do something, or when the sheet's edited, and then a form submit, that's the other one. So there's, there's really just the four. There's the on open, on edit, on change, and then when a form's submitted. So that form submit is, is a super useful one that actually in that, that first example I talked about where the feedback submitted and it generates the, the draft emails that was using a form submit event trigger to, to kick that process off. Now, again, with regard to that first um, example, when you mentioned about uh, you know, reading the, the data and generating the, the email, and you talked about how you actually sent it uh, into a Google service to kind of gauge how would I say it, whether it was a positive or a negative response. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So that was actually uh, one of the Google developer relations experts at the, at the Google Next conference demonstrated this, this solution where they, they took, I think it was Airbnb data uh, of feedback reviews in, in a Google Sheet, and then they, they ran it through this cloud natural language processor and what that does is just look at the a string of text and uh, uses machine learning. And, and the nice thing is you don't have to worry about any of the machine learning side of things unless you particularly want to, but you can just use this API endpoint, just send your string of data to it, and it'll send back a numeric score from minus one to plus one. That's a, uh, it gives you quite a few metrics, but the, the, the sentiment there from minus one to plus one gives you a, a sort of you know extremely negative um, sentiment of extremely positive sentiments. And then, you know, you can use a numeric value, obviously, to then do something. You've turned sort of unstructured data into structured data, which you can then, you know, if it's greater than certain thresholds, do certain things with it. And so that that was the demonstration that one of the Googlers did at the at the conference. And it was really, really interesting, actually. And, you know, just gave me an idea of, I, sort of, I could 
use that same setup and system in this in this example. And you access that through a RESTful API from within the the app script. How how do you get? Yes. To that? Yeah. Exactly. Yep. There's a, a URL fetch method, which is a way to go and call uh, RESTful APIs, and it can handle you know you can sort of handle authentication and, and that kind of thing with it as well. And since I see that AJ has, has joined us, AJ, don't you want to ask something about authentication with regard to all of that? Of course I do. What about authentication and all of that? <laughs> AJ looks like he's having, or sounds like he's having lunch. <laughs> no, I've got a cold. Aww. I've got a cough drop in my mouth. Apparently something's going around in Utah. Anyways. Uh, so, like, is there a specific question or just a sort of a general? Sounds like general, maybe. Is authentication handleable in AppJS? Uh, yeah, in AppScript, it sure is. So, um, sorry, AppScript. You can um, connect uh, APIs with OAuth two. There's an OAuth two library that Google actually created, one of the Googlers, which you can just use in your projects, and then it makes it very easy. It's just sort of a wrapper. Then you can it handles a lot of the behind the scenes stuff with the OAuth stuff. So you can you know set it up with the endpoint you need and the credentials you need, and then and then connect via OAuth. And what it does is it when you first run the program, it'll prompt you then to to authenticate that connection and log into that service, so that then you know you've you've created that authenticated connection to the API, and you can get back your data or whatever it is. Well, from what you've described, all the API that allows me to to read and write from various uh, documents in G Suite, obviously I need to be authenticated as a G Suite user. For example, if I if some action that I perform uh, updates a document, th- those changes should be associated with the account of the person who is actually using the service, not necessarily the person who wrote the app script. So that's handled through that authentication API that you just mentioned, or, or is that the Yeah, separate? it's actually, when it's um, connecting to the Google Apps, that's all built in so you don't have to you know, write any code to handle authentication. But when you first, the very first time you run the program, it will ask you to authenticate the app script file and it'll tell you what scopes it has, what access it has. So you can authorize it and you know that it, this program can read and edit and create spreadsheets, for example, or it can, uh, it's going to connect to your Gmail or it's going to connect to a third-party service. And so before it will ever run anything, you have to authenticate the script the very first time you run it. And therefore, you know, if it's a script you've not created yourself, you can, you know, you'll understand what it's trying to do before you allow it to do anything. Wish you could speed up your release cadence and skip the rollbacks and hotfixes? What if you could move faster, limit the blast radius of unforeseen problems, and free up individual teams to deploy as fast as they can develop? Split's feature delivery platform gives you progressive delivery superpowers like decoupling deploy from release, gradual rollouts with automatic telemetry to detect issues before they show up in operations graphs, and the ability to prove whether your features are hitting the mark using real user data, not the highest paid person's opinion. To learn more and sign up for a free trial, go to split.io. So is this the authorization dialogue that comes up when you go to use a Google App Engine, Google Doc App, Google Drive App? Yeah, the first, so it'll come up with a modal box and it'll, the first one will pop, will say which email address or which account rather are you using, do you want to authenticate with? So you click that and then the next one says, it'll say, you know, app script, blah, 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 wants to use the following scopes. Um, I'm not sure exactly the wording it uses, but, and then it'll say it wants to read, write, edit spreadsheets. It wants to connect to Gmail. And then it'll ask you to say authorize or, or cancel 
And so right. it's, that, it's that same Google flow, yeah. Okay. So I'm looking at, in your script editor here, under the publish, there's four different options for deploying a project. So as a web app, an API executable, a Sheets add-on, and deploying from a manifest. So can you talk about those four options? Yeah, so we'll start with the add-on. I mean, that's the one that I'm familiar with. So when you when you build a script, it's just, like I said, it's attached to, say, your Sheets, and you're the primary user. And if you wanted to share it with someone, you could share that Sheets. You know, they could copy and paste the code and put it into a different their own sheet if they wanted. But if you really want to share something at scale, then you'll want to publish it as an add-on so that it goes into the add-on store, and then people can actually download it and install it themselves you know, without you needing to be part of that process or without any kind of sharing of sheets and that kind of thing. So the add-ons are actual, and they, these are verified by Google. Well, actually, if you if you build an add-on just internally within your own G Suite domain, then it does not have to be verified by Google. But if it's one that's going to be external to that and it can be installed by anybody, then it has to go through a Google review process. You know, that's sort of quite a drawn out process. I've only ever created add-ons internally for my own, myself and my G Suite. So I've never gone through that review process, but it does take, it's a bit of back and forth and they'll ask you to keep, uh, you know, to keep maintaining the app and that kind of stuff afterwards as well. The, the manifest one, the only time I've used that one is, so Data Studio is another tool from Google that's a dashboarding tool and it allows you to build these, you know, like a sort of like a Tableau, it, it allows you to build um, very professional looking and dashboards very quickly. So you plug your data source in at the back end and then you can create all these charts and um, filters and things like that. And it's it's a really good way of reporting on your data. And one of the things you can do with AppScript in that context is build connectors from Data Studio to third-party APIs. I mean, it's been it's been a couple of years since I did that, but I, a couple of years since I did that, but I think that's where the, you certainly have to publish a manifest as part of that process. The other two I haven't really ever used, but you can, you know, you can write, set up your app script to be effectively an API or or actually publish it on the web for people to interact with through a URL that they would just go to that site uh, and it's there. I have a couple of additional questions. I guess I'll just shoot them off one by one. So the first question that I have is about Versioning, I guess. It's what happens when Google releases, well, they don't officially release a version because it's a cloud-based service, but have you run into situations where Google have changed something in the G Suite implementation and you ran into backward compatibility issues or some API broke or changed or something like that? Yeah, it's, you know, it hasn't affected me personally, but they do, I mean, they change things fairly often and they do deprecate old bits of the app script. So the way the the custom menus used to be done, the, the UI stuff used to, four or five years ago, was done differently, um, and that changed. You know, and, and they, they bring new things on all the time as well. So so the, the language is evolving and changing all the time. And, you know, the backwards compatibility is pretty good because it's it's this older version of JavaScript, like I said, and it's pretty sort of set, but they do, they do chop away bits from time to time. I understand. Okay, so basically you're saying that uh, overall from your experience, things tend to continue to work and uh, if something does change, you have the time to get it uh, up to the latest uh, version by using a deprecated function for a while until it's gone or something like that. Yeah, they do give you time to adjust. So, you know, fusion tables was, was an example recently where that used to be 
a service Google had where you could, it was sort of like, you know, gigantic versions of Google Sheets for storing data. It was used a lot by data visualization practitioners and journalists used it a lot, I think. And that was, I think, killed off in December, just gone. But it used to be accessible via App Script. And so undoubtedly, there are scripts out there that were running using importing and exporting data from Fusion tables. Uh, but they gave you at least sort of a year's notice on that one. Hmm. That sounds reasonable. Another question that I had with what was with regard to the context in which I think you call them triggers are run. Yeah. So I, I understand the triggers are just a way for you to specify like a JavaScript callback function and it gets invoked when some event happened, let's say, in the associated uh, document or something like that, correct? Yeah. And you will get probably some arguments that tell you what actually happened or direct you towards the, the right place or something like that. Yeah, so uh, we, we talked about those event triggers, but there are also time-based triggers, which are another really useful one. So it's like running cron jobs where you can specify to, say, run your function once every hour to bring new data back from an API or once a day or once a month or once a minute even. You know, you can write a function and then set a, a time trigger there and get that running you know, on, your, on your own schedule. Uh, you can also use App Script to programmatically create the triggers and delete the triggers and edit the triggers. So if certain things happen, that might, you might want to then build a trigger that then kicks off that kind of process. So let's say a trigger got, gets triggered. Is there any mechanism that kind of... What happens, for example, if let's say two triggers are triggered you know, in an overlapping manner, like you've got a timed one and another one that's based on change, and one is started, hasn't finished, and the other one gets triggered. Do they run simultaneously, or, is, or are they like done sequentially one after the other? So App Script is not asynchronous, so everything happens in sequence, in order. So it would finish one before it would start the next. And really, you know, they would run, but provided you you didn't sort of max out your quotas. So Google have put quotas in place for App Script, um, which are perfectly generous for, you know, as a small user, you're, you're not going to get close to probably hitting those quotas. But if you're building an add-on that's going to be used by 10,000 people at your organization, then it's quotas are something you would need to to be cognizant of. So it's how much computing power you can use with your with your App Script files. Um, so that might be something you would have to consider if you had a lot of complex triggers. You know, triggers are interesting, especially when you start to create them programmatically. I've had a few instances where I've, you know, set up and created a trigger, thought the code all looked great, left it running, and and woken up the next day to sort of 150 emails informing me the script's broken uh, the next morning and that kind of thing. So, so whenever you know if, if your if your script fails to run and you've got it set to then notify you if it fails to run and you get your script if you get your triggers wrong then that can make for some interesting inbox disasters. So talking about problems with your scripts, how do you actually debug your scripts? So you know you have a basic debugger built into the script editor there where you can put breakpoints in and you can look at the values of your variables and and, and whatnot at the different stages of the of the function. You know, so that's pretty useful. You can log your outputs at putting in a logger.log, kind of wherever you like in your script to look at what's going on. And that's been the way I've done it because I personally sort of, I come to App Script not from a professional developer background, but from a, actually formerly an accountant, so a knowledge worker background. And so, you know, the scripts I build are to automate things in G Suite, like these ones we've talked about so far today. 
And so for my purposes, that debugger is is adequate. For professional developers, they might be a little bit aghast at what that <laughs> what's available there. I think you know it's something that the IDE is something that Google are allegedly improving, and we should be getting that you know again hopefully this year. It's been talked about for a while, so hopefully it's soon. I assume you write the code wholly within the browser, correct? You do, but you can develop locally. So there's a tool called Clasp, which stands for the Command Line App Script interface, and so you can you can develop locally, you know, using Visual Code, say, or Sublime Text or whatever it is you like, and then use the command line then to push and pull scripts to the actual um, App Script file on Google server. So that's the way. If I'm developing a program that I know is going to be, you know, a little bit more complex and maybe involve more than just a single GS, a single script file, then I'll I might go down that route and set up a you know a local environment because then you get you know you just get all the benefits of using a proper a, a proper text editor and and whatnot and autocompletes and that kind of stuff. You're actually only editing the the file locally, right? It sounds like once you edit it, then it's got to be synced to Google. Yeah, exactly. So, so that it can actually run. Yep, that's right. That's right. But you can then do your versioning control and you know, upload it to GitHub and that kind of thing as well. But that was one thing I wanted to ask about too. So if you're working directly on the server in the, uh, you know, editing your code in the, the tool, I'm already blanking on what it's called, your your script editor there. Script, yep. That really doesn't provide any sort of source control, right? It's just save it and and it's there. You do have a built-in version control there where you can, so you can name versions at certain stages. So maybe when you've, you know, you've got a stable working version, you might say that's, describe that version and save that as a an actual version you can go back to if you want. It's definitely more basic than, you know, if you're used to Git and you're fully conversant with that, then you'd, you'd want to obviously implement that rather than just this sort of UI version that the script editor has. But it's still pretty useful there to have. There's also an add-on that you could employ in your script editor here that, that would allow you to push and pull direct from GitHub that I used for a while, but then it was, again, it was fairly basic and you couldn't really control, you didn't have too much control over it. I found actually it, it sort of, it wasn't useful enough to to to, main, to keep going with. So I stopped doing that. And then if I really want to upload to GitHub, then I'll develop locally, use this Clasp tool to push and pull from my app script servers. And also at the same time, just send the files backwards and forwards to GitHub as well. Another question that I had you kind of mentioned it in passing before. You said that all the APIs were synchronous. That's kind of surprising for everybody who's used to be using JavaScript, where everything is now asynchronous by default. So all the APIs, even like the quote-unquote cloud APIs or the fetches that you perform or stuff like that, all that stuff is totally synchronous? I'd kind of love to know how that works a little bit if it's using JavaScript too. Yeah, so I'm not the one to talk to about um, the ins and outs of that sort of implementation and the real details there, but AppScript is synchronous. Uh, so, you know, if you make that call to an API with URL fetch, you're going to wait until it's returned the data or returned an error before you before you sort of go to the next step of your of your script code. Well, it's their engine; they can do whatever they want. Do you mean synchronous or do you mean sequential? I mean, because if if you use fetch, I don't I don't think fetch has an asynchronous mode. XHR does. No, fetch in the browser is totally asynchronous. I mean, I, sorry, I meant synchronous. <laughs> I, <laughs> okay, I, I, I reversed it, my bad. 
I looked at some of the demos that were online, and it seems like it, you know, it's called Fetch, but it's not necessarily exactly the, th- the same thing as Fetch in the browser. So it's, you know, it's implemented synchronously, as far as I saw based on the examples. Also, all the APIs to access the documents, which if you think about it, would also be you know, a synchronous, you know, re- in a like, quote-unquote regular JavaScript environment, are all based on synchronous APIs. I'm guessing, I mean, this is just like a wild shot in the dark, but I know like with a lot of end-to-end testing libraries, it's designed to be synchronous, even though it's like actually making async calls in the background. So perhaps it's something like that, but it does sound like maybe we're getting into the weeds here a little bit. So, which I would like to get into the weeds, but I know we probably need to get to pick soon too. Yeah, well, I think actually um, Chuck wants to follow up with a an app script professional developer to follow up on this one, this, this uh, um, podcast. So... You know, hopefully you can have a part two when you can go really into the weeds with the, with that side of things. Agreed. Uh, and and one more thing that I quickly wanted to ask before indeed we go go to Pix or something like that. You mentioned uh, building HTML. I saw some talk about HTML templates and stuff like that. But before that, when you build something using HTML with App Script, is it would it be like a standalone web interface that I literally open in the browser in its own tab, or is it something that's embedded within like uh, the sheet or or document or something, or is it both? Yeah, it's a it's embedded in the sheet or the document as a sidebar is the way we're thinking of. So, and that sidebar you can you can style to you know you can add buttons and forms and embed videos and and all the usual stuff there. And that's when you would use the HTML and CSS to style that. So it's not really its own page with its own URL. It's it's like becomes part of like that quote unquote document or something like that. Well, I wouldn't. Let me just see. The, the publisher's a web app. You know, that might be where you can get it as a to have its own page there. Okay, then. So it sounds like you can do both. Okay, cool. Hey, folks. This is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. Dan, you want to go first? So I actually have one pick, but it's uh, I think it's a big one. Uh, I don't think it's been mentioned uh, in any of the episodes before. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's the Web Almanac. A bit late to the game because it was released in 2019 and we're already in 2020. But it's such an awesome thing that I think it's definitely worth a mention if it hasn't been mentioned before. So the Web Almanac, for those who don't know, is this like huge online document that's based on a ton of data that's collected as part of the HTTP archive. HTTP archive is like this thing that it contains a database of something like 6 million websites, I believe. Might be mistaken on that. But they run a whole bunch of tests on, the, on those. So they, they run synthetic sessions where they download the content, uh, the websites in different environments and, and look at how they behave, how much uh, JavaScript they might download, how much Im- images they might download, you know, which colors they use as part of their CSS and so forth. And they put all this information in database and you can run all sorts of interesting queries to see how, how the web works. And so they thought about a lot of these queries that might be interesting and useful, and they ran them, and then they collected all the information that they got as part of this uh, web almanac. And it, it's really an awesome document. It's got uh, something like 20 chapters, I think. I'm trying to open it right now, and for some reason, my web is kind of slow. 
but you've got a chapter about JavaScript and a chapter about CSS. So again, if you're interested in stuff like what are the most popular colors on the web, you might find it there. There's a chapter on performance and a chapter on security. If you want to, to know, for example, how much first-party scripts versus third-party scripts, which is the most popular JavaScript library, let's see if you can guess. Any guesses? It's jQuery by far. In any event, a lot of really interesting stuff. If you know the web is what you do and the web is what you love, I definitely recommend checking out this document and I will share the link to it. So that's my pick. Awesome. Steve, you want to go next? Yeah, so I'm going to go a different route and go with sports equipment. You know, I head to the gym just about every day, well, about five or six days a week. And uh, a buddy of mine from my CrossFit gym showed me this bag that he has, and it's called a King Kong bag. It's the name of the, the maker. And uh, it's like, an, uh, they have these different athletic bags. They have backpacks and athletic bags. But as the name suggests, they're really, really strong, like military grade type bags. And you can get different sizes. But the cool thing about them is they have, they're designed, you know, really specifically for athletic gear. I do a lot of CrossFit. So a lot of CrossFit people like them, but it's got, you know, separate pockets for shoes and side pockets for holding different things. And they're sort of spendy. I got a medium sized bag, not the largest one, a medium sized bag. And it was on sale for like, I think it was 110. I got it for Christmas, but it's the kind of bag that's going to last you a really, really, really long time just because of how uh, strong it's made. And it has, I believe, a 25-year warranty against any defects in it. You know, obviously, that's not going to cover, you know, wear and tear or things due to, it, due to it. But I've seen stories of, you know, someone broke a zipper and they'll send you a new zipper or, or whatever. So really strong, a little more spendy, but I've loved it since I've gotten it. And uh, kind of bag that's going to last you a long time and, and serve you well for, you know, storing all your athletic gear if you, if you work out a lot. Seems like one of those instances when you spend more and end up saving. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you're not having to buy, you know, more bags because they wear out, then short-term expenditure for long-term, long-term durability. Awesome. Hey, Jay. I recently discovered photography, professional, amateur, professional amateur photography. I, I haven't quite discovered it yet. Actually, I'm still on the frisk, from the rim, the blue on the event horizon of discovering it. And <laughs> there's like, you know, there's a million different camera brands and blah, 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 blah. But Canon is just the one that, you know, most people have had. And some people are turning to Sony because they were far ahead of the game and doing 4K video. And Canon still really isn't there with something that's relatively affordable or that's critically acclaimed to work really well for that. But anyway... It turns out that a lot of what's different between one release of a Canon camera and the next release of a Canon camera is actually just the, the software slash firmware that's on the camera. So you can go back pretty much as far as the, the T4i, which is exactly the same as the T5i, other than a marking on the outside, a notch on the plastic case, and the software. Like, they're identical. There's no difference in specs or anything. And you can run uh, the software called Magic Lantern on it, which basically somebody just exploited the firmware update option to make a small change so that it can run other software simultaneously. So you, the, the menu button goes to the Canon menu and the delete button, which does nothing except for in one particular case when you're in playback mode, 
will now open up the Magic Lantern menu and it gives you access to some features that basically make some of their super old cameras come alive with with new features and stuff that you can do. And for a lot of them, I mean, like the megapixels between the old and new aren't that different. And there, it's just the difference between the processor. The processor's a little faster, so it can handle a little more, but the sensor is the same. So anyway, just kind of a cool exploration into that. And I'm, I'm hoping to be able to create really cool photos for my blog of SD cards laying on the table or whatever, I guess. But Magic Lantern is pretty cool community not firmware, but applet. I don't know what you'd call it. To go with a lot of, not all, but a lot of older Canon cameras. So you can save a bunch of money, get one that's only a little bit older and has almost identical specs and then kind of get the software upgrades through the side channel. So that's a cool, neat thing I'll pick. Yeah, that, that sounds interesting, AJ, because I've had a Canon EOS Rebel for probably 10 years, I think, 10, 11 years. And I've often thought about upgrading, but uh, it sounds like, uh, I mean, I've never even come close to pushing the limits on what my camera can do, but sounds like yeah, I could save myself a lot of money with something like this and just tweak some things. Yeah, well, you get, you get features like uh, the zebra exposure and, of course, snake. No, actually, I don't, I don't know if snake is part of what you get in the default bundle. Um, it's like Pong. You know, that's important to be able to play that on your camera or not. That's the main point of the camera, isn't it? Yeah, when you get bored, you just pull it out and play Pong. It just gives you access to some lower level features. Um, Like, for example, in the T7i, you get 3x zoom, crop zoom. And with the T4i, which is, I don't know how many years earlier, but approaching a decade earlier, you can also get that because it was always a part of the camera if you just couldn't access it. And if it weren't for the issue of uh, SD cards being way slower than CF cards, and so having to have a really recent camera to have an SD card with fast writes, if you have an old camera that has a CF card, you can actually write 4K video to a CF card with this, because it just allows you to bypass all the Canon digital processing and just dump it out straight to the card. So there's a number of you can get 4K raw video with a lot of these Canon cameras using this thing. So in that case, like literally on, on the high end, you could be saving yourself thousands of dollars to get their, one of their pro cameras that's like a decade old. Start with that. I'm going to do my pick really quickly. Um, I've been doing like more mentoring lately. So it looks like a post, as with a lot of things, I get them from Hacker News engineer at Uber and um, his advice on mentoring. And it's just a uh, developers mentoring other developers practices I've seen work well. A lot of this stuff's pretty good. So that's going to be my pick. Uh, ben, you want to go? Yeah. So uh, I work for myself, work from home. And one of the perpetual challenges is to, you know, be productive and not, not procrastinate. And so there's a little app called Cold Turkey that has just been uh, pretty useful, especially in the early days to to sort of block all the websites like Twitter and news and sports and all the places I shouldn't go when I'm supposed to be working. And so it's called Cold Turkey. It's super easy to set up and you can sort of just set windows of time when you, you know, when you block the BBC Sports website, for example, or Twitter and, and that sort of thing. And so, you know, it just, it, it was, it's been very helpful to, to make sure that I get a good working routine set up uh, when I'm working for myself. Nice. I guess that's it then. Thank you for coming. And well, Ben, do you want to oh. 
tout your stuff. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Please, yes, please. No, thank you. <laughs> you got your, it looks like your website and you've got courses and stuff on uh, AppScript. Everything can be found at benlcollins.com. And that's the same for my Twitter handle is benlcollins. And on my site there at Ben L. Collins, I have a, a free beginner app script course sort of just to get you up and running. And, and it teaches you a lot of things we talked about today. And you work through the very basics all the way through to building a little application based around a form and automatically sending emails. So like a simplified version of that example we talked about actually today. And yeah, so everything's at benlcollins.com. And thank you very much for having me on. It's a real pleasure to, to meet you all and chat about AppScript and advocate for, for AppScript today. Yeah, it, it does seem like an extremely useful thing. I think that a lot of the stuff that we either spend much more effort than we should building or alternatively don't actually build because we think it will take too much effort can actually easily be done with the, with the AppScript and, and the G Suite. So it looks like a really, really useful thing. Yeah, it's def- definitely worth um, some time investigating and, and seeing what, what you can do with it for sure. Honestly, sounds like maybe a good place to start too for beginners. It is. It definitely is. Yep. You know, because you can build some fun, useful little tools straight off the bat that do do useful things for you rather than just sort of some abstract, you know, example that you can't then go and use. Yeah, you can build something that's actually helpful. Awesome. With that, I guess we will say bye and we'll see you all next week. Adios. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.